Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us and uh, thus allow us to draw more power into our lives, which I think is so important because we need that power in our lives today. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this will be a short cast, so probably more of a mid-range cast, where we're going to talk about the tabernacle because quite a bit of the reading today is about the skilled artisans who create the tabernacle and about building the tabernacle itself. And I think that's worth just thinking about and talking about. Uh, This is a lecture I do at length at Education Week and elsewhere, and I'm working on a book on this topic, although it's been shelved a little bit as I've got some other projects that I've started to work on first, but I'll get back to that that, uh, project soon. In any case, I'm just going to do a short version of it today, but I think it's worth thinking about. Uh, let's start out by asking ourselves, as we want to learn about the tabernacle, uh, at, let's ask ourselves, what was it called? It's called a tabernacle. Uh, that's the English translation that we get often, which means a temporary dwelling place. It comes from a verb to tabernacle somewhere, where, which means to dwell somewhere just temporarily. So this is God's temporary dwelling place. His permanent dwelling place is in heaven, celestial kingdom, but he comes on earth on occasion for a moment. And when he does that, he tabernacles here, and he does so in a tabernacle or in a temporary dwelling place. It's also called the tent of the presence. This is a place where he is, you can tell he is there. His presence is uh, obvious as the uh, cloud or the pillar of fire is there. And so they know they can come into the presence of God in that tabernacle. It's also called the tent of meeting. That's a real uh, focus and highlight of this. This is where mankind can truly meet God. This is where we can come into contact with each other and commune with each other. So we're going to talk today about a commute to that place where we can commune. Uh, It's called the tent of the congregation, meaning it's a place that um, we can, uh, our group, uh, the the covenant people, the covenant community uh, belong to this structure and it belongs to them. And then it's called a sanctuary, a place that is, is holy and can protect you from the things of the world. And so all of those are, are important uh, names. It's also called the tent of testimony, meaning that this is where you can see the testimony of the presence of God and so on. So all of those different names help us understand different aspects of the tabernacle. And I hope as I talk about the tabernacle that you're also thinking about our current temples, they're really, you should, everything we talk about today should be applied to our current temples, but I'm just going to talk about the tabernacle today. All right, so this, uh, the testimony, in the tent of the testimony, the, the testimony itself is often thought of as the tablets of the covenant. In other words, there's a testimony, both of God, but also of the covenant that you've entered into with God. Covenant is a huge part of the tabernacle. So let's talk about creating the tabernacle and and see if we can make this real. There are different elements of this that I hope can become very real for us. Um, And so we ask ourselves, what was the tabernacle made of? Well, um, it's made of linen. There there is a lot of linen involved. That all comes from flax. Uh, So you grow flax in Egypt was the place where you could get flax most easily. There were other places, but that's where you could get it most easily. And they're coming from Egypt and probably had lots of linen that they would then have donated to the temple. But anyway, uh, most of the cloth, and there's a lot of cloth used in this, is made from linen, some from goat hair, and they're bringing their flocks with them, so they have access to goat hair and to ram skin. Um, 
there's one that a, a particular substance is made, and we're not sure exactly how to translate this word. It's made of either badger skin or dolphin skin. Uh, so, I mean, they were by the Red Sea. Did they get dolphins and use their skins or trade for that or something or find enough badgers? And it takes a lot of badgers to make something very big. We, we really don't know exactly what this is. Um, it's also used, the biblical term is uh, shatim wood. Um, uh, that's acacia wood. All right. So the, the, there's a lot of wood in the tabernacle, and that is made from acacia. And uh, we'll talk about that some more in just a minute. It's made from brass or bronze, uh, and that's uh, a metal that um, they're able to, to get as, uh, and, and make as they're going along. We'll talk about that. It's also made from silver, so we'll talk about those things. And there is gold, uh, absolutely some gold involved in this. So let's ask this question, where would they get the wood from? Because they're in a kind of wilderness where there is not much wood. Uh, you just, In fact, the miracle uh, of the burning bush on Mount Sinai is, is uh, that the bush burned but wasn't consumed. But part of the miracle is that there was a bush there at all. I mean, this is just not a, a place where you find much. But out in this desert area, you get a couple of different kinds of shatim or uh, acacia trees that are grown. And in particular, there's an umbrella tree and there's a twisted uh, acacia tree. Those are the two that you're going to find the most. And you find them in the Sinai area and in the Negev area, the southern area of, of uh, Israel. Um, there sometimes they can grow to be quite large. Uh, and so these things are out there and, and you can use them uh, for the wood parts. It's the only kind of wood that would have been available, but it was available. We also have to ask ourselves, where would they get their metal? Well, they certainly brought a lot of metal with them. The Exodus story notes that the, they took uh, ornaments and all sorts of things with them. We've already seen that and that they uh, got their um, uh, ornaments and they made a golden calf out of it, but they can make things for the tabernacle as well. But they're also out in the Sinai area and uh, in the negative area around there. Uh, there are uh, mines, copper mines. This is the area where the Egyptians went to mine copper, a little bit of silver, turquoise, uh, so they're in the area where they can get copper, which is one of the primary ingredients in bronze. Uh, and so uh, they can do some mining uh, as they go, as well as melting down the things that they brought with them. Uh, gold is not so prevalent in that area. That mostly comes from the South. And so they probably had to get the gold from their own things. They also had skilled artisans that were with them. They're named, they're important individuals. And uh, these are individuals who would have acquired skills in Egypt. Uh, they, we have lots of depictions of, say, incense ladles, uh, incense altars, and um, things that are very similar to the ark, where the Egyptians built these, these kinds of ark boats that uh, carried statues of gods. And my guess would be that these artisans had uh, been part of that in Egypt. They, they built some of these things and then could apply their ability to do that to make the, the accoutrements for the temple in the way that God had asked them to do it. So it's not unlike the famous story with the Manti temple where uh, the people who were building it, a number of them were boat builders. So how did they make the roof? Well, they just built a boat and uh, you know the whole boat turned it upside down and that became the roof, right? God takes people who are skilled at something and he has them use that in a slightly different way according to his instructions to make the things that he needs them to make. And so I think we have these skilled artisans that are able to do this uh, because they've learned how to make these things in Egypt. So they, that's that's kind of the real stuff. How did they make the temple? 
Now let's focus, and, and this should be the focus of this mid-range cast, uh, or our short cast. The, the focus is going to be on the archetypal journey of the temple. Uh, and we've talked about archetypal journeys before, and we will uh, uh, again as we talk about the idea that so many things that happen are symbolic of our journey to be with God. That's what the archetypal journey is, is it's a journey to be with God. Uh, so there are other archetypal journeys in the scriptures. The Exodus story itself is an archetypal journey. So it's the Nephite Exodus, the Jaredite Exodus, are just some examples of archetypal journeys where these are journeys that happen that symbolically teach us about our journey to regain God's presence. The tabernacle or the temple modern and ancient, are archetypal journeys. They are journeys about leaving God's presence, leaving the world behind, and regaining God's presence in a higher, holier state. Um, so let's just make sure we think of the temple or the tabernacle in that way. Uh, all, all different phases of temples and tabernacles, whether that be the tabernacle of Temple Solomon, the Temple of Herod, or the, uh, the Linden Temple that is, uh, just had its groundbreaking last Saturday. Uh, they're all archetypal journeys. And what is the goal of these journeys? Well, it's to, to regain God's presence. And so we need to think about the symbols in the journey. That's a symbolic journey. So we need to focus on those symbols. So one of the symbols is that God tells them that as when they camp, the tabernacle will be at the center. All the tribes will be arranged around the tabernacle, but it's at the center. When they travel, it goes at the forefront the Ark of the Covenant leading the way, but when they, and, and there's some important symbolism in there. And when they camp, it's at the center. There's some fantastic symbolism in there. I'm not going to explore them. I'm just going to let you fill that in in your minds. It's worth sitting down and thinking about how is the temple the center for the modern house of Israel, uh, the center for you and your life. Now, we're going to talk about this uh, journey of the tabernacle, and it's important to understand that there's the tabernacle itself, but there's a huge courtyard. So they, they create this fence all the way around it um, with this these kind of linen and goat hair um, curtains that, that are strung around to create a, a, a place inside that is holy. So outside is where anyone can be. That's the world. Anyone can be there. Only covenant Israel can go inside. And once we get uh, to the temple, and the, uh, we don't know exactly when you get these different gradations, but you get by the time of the temple of Herod, there's a court of the Gentiles. There is a part where Gentiles can go, but then there's another court where only Israelites can go, and then a court where the men can go, and then you go inside and only the priests can go there. So one of the keys to understanding this journey, uh, this ritual symbolic journey, is to think of gradations of holiness. As you become more and more godly and less and less like the world, you can continue to progress in your journey and draw ever nearer to God. Uh, you can think of this as leveling up in your holiness or gaining spiritual momentum, uh, those kinds of things. But we're trying to uh, distinguish between the world, which is outside, uh, and the holy space itself which is inside, right? And, and you have to be part of the covenant. This is part of turning your back on the world and becoming less like the world and being changed. We've talked about that with covenant. We've talked about that with being born again. If you need to go back and review the like becoming sons and daughters of God podcast and the born again podcast and, and so on, uh, listening to the idea of holiness that I talked about with Avram Shannon uh, and the, the one on the law of Moses, but Think of these different things and, and the change and the, how the covenant changes you 
and the Holy Ghost that comes as reception, you receive the Holy Ghost because of that covenant. And then you're a different person, so you can enter a different space because once you go inside that uh, cordoned area that, that's been separated off, that's a sacred space. It's holier than the world. It's different, and it's more godly. It's closer to God's nature and less like the fallen nature of the world. And so we have to match that in ourselves to be able to be in that space, and the covenant makes that possible. Um, so let's also look at a couple of names for the Temple of Solomon because this will help us understand the the really the nature of the temple as well it's called the house of the lord so this is a, a, a house it's a, a temporary one still when i mean it, the house has become permanent but when god comes the only tabernacle is there but this is more permanent it's the house of the lord this is where he will dwell when he comes it's also called the place where his name shall dwell this idea of his name and being begotten of him taking his name upon us because we're changed uh, is really important it's also called the house of holiness. And that's why I want to talk about this right now. It is a house where you are different than the world. You're closer to God's nature. Uh, all right. So if you have become part of uh, the house of Israel and made that covenant, you can go into this courtyard. So then the question is, what do you encounter when you get in the courtyard? What's your, your next step now that we've made covenant and we're trying to progress? And the first thing you encounter is an altar. And there's a tremendous amount of, of symbolism there. Um, there's a, a, a altar made of wood and bronze. It's, it's made of wood and then with this bronze overlay. And it has four horns on it. Um, and this is important to understand. Uh, there, there are a number of symbols from this. So the horns are symbols of power. And in many of the rituals, uh, the sacrifices, you put blood on those horns. And I think that there's certainly some symbolism there. And all, and, and all of the uh, sacrifices that you offer and part of the reading for this time and for next time, no, I think it's mostly this time, are about different kinds of offerings. So you have burnt offerings that are wholly consumed and given up to God. You've got peace and trespass offerings where you partake of them, all sorts of different kinds of offerings. And we talked about this a little bit with Avram Shannon, um, but they're all symbolic of Christ. Every one of them is symbolic of Christ. And so um, we have this uh, symbolism that you partake of Christ's atoning sacrifice. But at the same time, you are making a sacrifice. And it's symbolic of that. Covenant is always entered into by sacrifice. And you cannot become more holy without sacrifice. Really, you're giving up your fallen nature. You're giving up your worldly nature. You're giving up the things of the world. You have to kill those things. You have to kill a part of you. You have to sacrifice, and that allows you to partake of the atoning sacrifice of Christ uh, and uh, the, the blood on there and everything else. This is all just I I important symbols uh, that you can uh, really try and internalize in your life as you think about those horns and the power with the, the blood on them and you giving and Christ giving of himself and those two meeting there at that altar um, and how that uh, become something that you can uh, partake of in your life. Now, interestingly, uh, in the, uh, the law of Moses, if you are seeking sanctuary at the temple, what you do is you run into the temple and you grab onto the horn of the altar. So think of the, since the horn represents power and they put the blood of the sacrifice on there, think of that, uh, that symbolism. It's fantastic symbolism. Uh, anyway. Okay. So let's, let's keep going. And we uh, look at after the altar is the uh, brazen laver. 
This is where washings take place. So think about this. This is important. You sacrifice, you give up some of yourself, you partake of Christ's atoning sacrifice. And an added element of that is the washing away of, of the world. All right. So part of our sacrifice, when we sacrifice, we are trying to get rid of the world and the world is washed away from us. So there's this beautiful brazen labor uh, symbolism there or bronze labor that is, the idea is that we wash the world away. But the next thing that can ha- that happens for the priests, at least, is uh, or I don't know if it's next. It happens at different times. But another thing that happens for the priests is that they are anointed. And so you have this washing, and then you have this anointing, which is, I think, symbolic. It parallels what happens in uh, at the altar, where you have the um, you wash the world away, or you sacrifice your worldly nature, and then you partake of the power of Christ. That that changes you. So you have to get rid of the world, and then you take in the heavenly. And that happens through the atoning sacrifice of Christ as he changes you not only to wash away the world, but changes you to make you more holy, more uh, godly, right? This happens as we enter the covenant baptism. We have the symbolism of washing uh, the sins of the world away, laying the old man down, and then you arise a new man, and then you receive the Holy Ghost, which is that it brings that sanctifying power of Christ into you and changes you. Uh, So this is all wonderful matching sets of, of symbols here. Uh, the priests would also be clothed. And it's really, we need to start to focus on the priests now because from here on out, everything, only the priests could do this, but they are representing all of us. And uh, so you, uh, they, they become us in this journey and we become them. So uh, the priests have white linen that they wear. And uh, this is representative of becoming covered, right? So the word for uh, atonement in Hebrew means to cover. Uh, it's covering your nakedness. It's covering your worldliness. And instead, you're clothed with righteousness, with godliness, with the robes of righteousness, with purity. Uh, and so th- there's so much symbolism behind being clothed. And it's worth going into the, the scriptures and looking at this symbolism. So you're, you're clothed with that. And then the high priest is clothed with all sorts of other stuff, purple. And you have this idea of royalty. He has a breastplate with stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel and things on his shoulder that represent, and we get this in Isaiah and uh, elsewhere, that represent uh, power and governing and, and so on. Uh, and uh, he wore something on his uh, hat that represented kind of a crown, but also a connection with God and so on. All sorts of, of symbols behind the uh, clothing. Again, everything we're doing today is we're just touching on. It's worth doing more. And as I said, they're anointed. Um, so that uh, you are taking the, this power of God upon you and given the ability. They're anointed both with oil and with blood on their head, on their thumb, and on their toe, which in some ways is, is from head to toe, literally, uh, but also this idea, well, and on their ears, right? So um, that you hear, that you do, and that you go according to what God wants you to do and with the atoning power of Christ. Um, it, it, making it possible for you to do this in a godly way. So great symbols there. Uh, all right, so you do all of those things. And then finally, the, the priests can go the next level. In the tabernacle, they'll go uh, into the, the holy place. That's the next level. Uh, once they build it so it's not portable, the Temple of Solomon and the uh, Temple of Herod and so on, 
uh, Nehemiah's temple, you get um, uh, this, well, Zerubbabel's temple, you get uh, steps. So you ascend up, right? You, you symbolically not only are going into a holier space, but you're ascending. And that's fantastic symbolism. Uh, there are these veils that uh, protect the area and they have pictures of cherubim on them. And so this idea that God is protecting that sanctity, protecting you from holiness that is too great from you and protecting the holiness from an unholy and so on. Uh, and the angels are standing as sentinels as it were, and so on uh, to let you in. So then you go into the holy place and there are a number of things that you see once you're inside the holy place, you're going to see the menorah on your left-hand side, and a table of showbread on the right-hand side. I know it's spelled shoe, but it's uh, apparently pronounced show. Uh, and so, but that's, it's bread that you see. It's a presence bread is what it's often talked about. There's also towards the end, you've got the uh, altar of incense and the uh, veil. So we'll talk about all of those things in their places. So immediately on your left is the menorah. Uh, it has symbolism of the tree of life. It's got, uh, it's definitely, it's got almond uh, knops on it. And so on, you're supposed to think of a tree and I think tree of life, it's seven branched. And so you have this idea of completion and creation and, and so on. Um, those almonds are symbolic of, um, they're the first things to blossom. And so it's uh, obeying, obeying quickly, but also first fruits are symbolism uh, there. Uh, and then, of course, there, these are lamps where you have uh, light and think of the symbolism of light and partaking of light, receiving more light. It's also olive oil that's burning and olive oil is symbolic of the presence of the Holy Ghost. It's also used for healing. Um, it's used uh, for food. It's, I mean, just so many symbols packed into here as you have the, uh, the tree of life that is giving you light and uh, that light is coming through the Holy Ghost and so on. Just fantastic symbols. On the other side is the table of showbread. This is uh, symbolic of a number of things, but think in terms of like the bread of life, of having a meal with God. And I think I've talked about this earlier in the podcast, but having a meal with God, which symbolizes that you are now part of his household. You're no longer part of the world's household. You are in his house. You're part of his household. You're part of the family. You're welcomed in and you eat with God. Who That means now you really are part of his family, but you're eating. Uh, and I think, again, bread of life, you're partaking more fully of Christ and it's becoming more who you are. So just great symbols there. Then finally, we get to the incense altar. It also has four horns and they're going to be anointed with uh, oil and with blood. So the same symbolism there, the incense. You, you, there's a certain recipe for the incense that's altered, offered on this altar of incense that that can't be used in any other, that, that recipe of incense can't be used anywhere else. It is specifically unique to this because it's different. It's set apart. It's holy. Uh, I think, you know, think in terms of uh, some symbolism. Some of it is the smell. Everything, this smells different. Everything about this is different. It smells different. And, and it probably hopefully covers some of the smell of the slaughtering that's going on out in the courtyard, but, um, but it, it, it smells different. Everything about it is different, but we also learn in the book of revelation that some of the symbols of this are the symbols of, um, the prayers of the saints ascending up to God. And so that's fantastic. Um, and that's the thing that is right before the veil. Uh, and the veil has these cherubim on it. So again, you have the cherubim almost just like in the Garden of Eden that are protecting us from the tree of life, or in other words, uh, coming into God's presence. Uh, uh, but the last thing that you engage in before you go through that veil is this incense or the prayers that off go up to God. And every temple system I know of, you offer these special prayers or 
uh, rituals, really heartfelt, big stuff right before you can try and come into the presence of God because you really need to importune him and have his help if you're going to successfully come into his presence. Then you can go through that veil and come into the, the Holy of Holies. Finally, when you've gone through this whole journey with the light, the, the bread, the prayers, you're changed. Uh, you are now changed enough that you can come into the Holy of Holies. So when you get in there, the, the thing you encounter, and again, ascending up further if you're in the uh, temple and so on, uh, but it's certainly another gradation of holiness, so much so that only the high priest can go in there and only once a year. And uh, if he were to go in unprepared, the idea is that he would die. If he were to go in and God were there and you would see him and he's not ready, then he would die, this kind of a thing. So it's it, this is the really, really holy place. And what's in there? Well, it's the Ark of the Covenant. So there is so much symbolism behind here. First of all, think of covenant. It's, it's the Ark of the Covenant, right? But the lid is called the mercy seat or the seat of atonement. On it, it has these two cherubim whose wings spread out. That's thought uh, of that lid as, as the seat, the throne where God will sit when he comes. So if he's going to come to earth, that's where he will be. But even then, the cherubim are protecting his presence from anything that might be unholy and anything unholy from his presence and so on. It's only when we are equal in holiness, and that only happens through the transfiguring and, and transforming power of uh, Christ's atoning sacrifice. That's all that symbolism leading up to that got us here, right? But then we can be here. Um, and again, it's it, the mercy seat or seat of atonement is the, the lid, but the, the name of the thing is covenant. So it's the covenant combined with Christ's atoning sacrifice, which makes the blessings of the covenant possible. And the ultimate blessing of the covenant is to come to God's presence. We're going to talk more about covenant when we get to Deuteronomy, but that's the ultimate blessing of the covenant is to come into God's presence. All of that is combined in the idea of coming into the Holy of Holies and um, being in God's presence symbolically. Inside are the tablets uh, of the, the Ten Commandments or, or the commandments. So think, keep in mind that's your primary obligation under the covenant is to, to obey. You've got the manna in there. Again, you partake of Christ and you have um, the, uh, the uh, almonds and, and so on from when Aaron's uh, rod blossomed, which is really symbolic of, of uh, the priest of the living power of the priest of being with Aaron. And so all those things combine in this symbolism of being able to be in God's presence. So that's a, a fantastic way to think about um, what's happening here is this journey to be with God again. And I hope you'll take the time to explore all of those symbols and see how they work in your life and what you can do to make them work even better in your life. And I hope it will also enable you as we go to our own temple to think of it as a symbolic journey and, and uh, go through the uh, symbols in there and the elements in there and better apply that to our life as well. 